Save the date for the 12th of September. Join our webinar on digital transformation in manufacturing. We are exploring how IoT, AI and smart factories are reshaping our sector. Hear from industry leaders like Airbus, Rolls-Royce and Heriot Watt University. This is a must attend for professionals and decision makers in manufacturing. So register now at resources.red-fern.co.uk slash webinar. That's resources.red-fern.co.uk slash webinar. The link is also in the description. I had a fascinating conversation this week with James Patterson of Biological Preparations. We talked about the past, present and future of biotech, how we can hit our climate change targets and why David Attenborough is a key figure in changing hearts and minds. From Redfern Media, this is Remake Manufacturing. My guest this week is James Patterson, Managing Director of Biological Preparations. They're the UK market leader in biological and ecological cleaning solutions. They specialize in the development of products based on microbial, antimicrobial, plant extract, and enzyme technology. So James Patterson, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. So first off then, let's, t- let's talk about your background. You joined Kimberly Clark from university back in the 90s. At that time, businesses weren't so concerned with environmental issues as they are right now. So what attracted you to biology and the natural world and how, how do you feel things have changed? I think I got some very good grounding at Kimberly Clark. You know, I did four or five years there and it was, it was a great experience. But really, I wanted to try and do something that I could make more of a difference than I could in, in the FMCG world at the time, which was, you know, it was it had, a, had a very clear direction in the way it was going. And and biotechnology at that time was had quite a lot of investment in it, and it had some really great opportunities as to where the technology could go. So, you know, I moved across to biotech really to try and see where that technology would go. You know, when you go back to the 80s and 90s, it was going to be the next IT from that perspective. So it, it had some great opportunity, and, and really it was about where it could, where it could go having had a couple of false starts along the way. So that was really the aim, was to, was to join something with more exciting technology. As you say, back then, it wasn't really about the environmental side. It was more about the exciting nature of new technology. And the commercial prospects. There. And, and were, were all the things that you hoped for lived up to, or, or have, you, have you found disappointments along the way? How, what's the reality of, of moving into that area? I think if I go back to the very early days, I think to a large degree biotechnology was missold. So what happened was it was, it was sold as a solution to everything. And people were mm-hmm. literally adding it to anything they could possibly think of and making all sorts of crazy claims. And I think that set the market back probably 10 to 15 years in reality. Um, it actually, I don't know what the right expression would be, but it made people look at biotechnology and go, oh, well, now I've tried that before. It doesn't work. And th- we had to spend a lot of time actually through the early 2000s just re-educating people and, and, and explaining what, how it works, why it works and what it will work on um, rather than it being a miracle cure. Right. And, and what do you think is the right way of framing it then? Um, in terms of your company, you founded Biological Preparations in 2009. So what was your mission when you started that and, and how would you reframe the idea of biotech? Yeah. So, so what we wanted to do was we, you know, prior to that, we'd worked 
in biotech on a range of industries. And, and we tried to pull together the best people that we knew of in the industry to form our own business, which we did. We started with about 10 of us. And what we were really trying to do was, you know, the biology really is about, it's about living organisms that are able to do things that, that we can't do with traditional chemistry. So it, it's, it's really about trying to replicate what nature does. You know, if, if, if nature didn't have biology, we would, well, we all wouldn't exist for starters, but we'd be, you know, we'd be knee high in feces and we, you know, the, the whole thing, the whole way that, that nature works is something that we really wanted to try and replicate. And we had some fantastic technology that, that people had worked on over the years. And we had some really clever ideas about how we wanted to bring that to market and how we wanted to further develop it. And for me, when I looked at the, the sort of environmental side, that environmental biotechnology side, it had been it had been sold in certain ways, normally at a very high price with not brilliant efficacy. So it didn't work brilliantly. It was very expensive. And nobody was really explaining the environmental benefits of it. So we felt that we had clever enough technology that actually we could be just as efficacious as, as traditional technology, that our price point, because of the, the 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 way that the technology works, would be very competitive. And of course, we could be more quantifiable in the way that we talked about being environmentally friendly. Because you know, if you go through the '90s and, and most of the 2000s, people just talked about being environmentally friendly. They didn't actually explain what that means. What does it mean being environmentally friendly? Nobody really spoke about that. You know, so so for us, it was about what can we quantify? What can we actually say to people? Do you know, when we say environmentally friendly, we're really talking about carbon footprint. We're talking about plastic pollution. We're talking about a healthier environment with less toxicity. You know, we can be very specific and quantifiable in, in what we're offering rather than just say, well, it's good for the planet. Because again, that was oversold. It's good for the planet. Everybody said everything was good for the planet in the end, which of course isn't true. Yeah. It depends how you frame it there as well, doesn't it? Well, we'll, we'll get into those issues in a moment, but just to paint a picture of what you were doing at Biological Preparations, what was a project that you were working on that you felt was really exciting, as you said, uh, and, and sort of moved things forward? So we, we really started in, the, in what I'd call the softer ends of the market. So you know, we work across five different market sectors and we were focused on the more, what I'd call the bioremediation side. So the ability to degrade organic matter. And that really is the, the bread and butter of, of, of biotechnology, if you like. That's really what it's been best known for. Um, and then the, 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 the cross side of that was the, the, preserve, the preservative and augmentation side. So really, we started off in what I'd call the, uh, the grease market. So all your fat oil and grease, it goes down your drains, it goes into the sewers, causes blockages, causes all sorts of pollution. So you want things that can degrade that. And we were doing things in agriculture. You know, you see these massive bales covered in plastic. And what you want to be able to do is, is not have to treat them with acid or other nasty stuff. You want to be able to do it with, with microbes and, and get not just preserved crops, but also add some sort of um, enhancement to it to, to enable uh, a better feed for the animals. So really, those were probably the two aspects that we started on. And then we started to expand from those from that point. Fascinating. And that, that sort of reminds me of something you said in our pre-interview. Uh, you said everything we do comes back to the natural world. So can you maybe go into that a bit more deeply and tell us uh, what that idea is all about? Yeah. So this really goes right back to what nature is doing to try and keep everything the way that it is that we see it around us. So it's about trying to find 
the things that nature uses to clean or to bioremediate or to augment. And, and what, what I mean by that is if you can find, so most of the work that's being done in the natural world is done by biology, but there are almost an infinite number of, of, of bacteria, strange species, et cetera. And what you're trying to do is find ones that are particularly good at working in certain ways. And that really is the challenge to, to, to biotechnology. How do you find a way of, of finding something that's particularly good at degrading X or Y? And that's what our scientists were very good at. And they spent a lot of years developing that science and developing that knowledge and, and came up with very, very specific solutions because biotech is about specificity. So it's not like a, a, a traditional chemical, for example. You know, I, I like to term it, you know, if you were trying to get into a locked room, what biotechnology does is it, it actually, there's a million keys. It's finding the right key. And then you can just literally turn the lock and open the door and you're in the room. What a traditional technology type solution will do is it will knock the door down with a sledgehammer. You still right. get in, but there's lots of repercussions to, the, to, the, to that way versus the other way. Well, let's talk climate change then. Um, it looks like we're a long way from getting to the 1.5% target that we've all been aiming for. What do you think are the main challenges that are getting in the way of us hitting, hitting that target? I think to a large degree, it's people understanding why we're not getting to that target. So it's about people understanding what oil is being used for. So I hear a lot of people say, oh, we should be using less oil and why does this happen? And I, I don't think people actually realize what they're buying is actually mostly oil-based. You know, if I look at the cleaning industry, which is one of the industries that we're in, 75% to 80% of, of what's currently being used is petroleum-based. So until people make that change and say, well, actually, I'll stop buying that cleaning products, or I'll stop buying that commodity that I'm currently buying, then the oil producers will have no need to stop because it's not just about fuel and energy because we all talk a lot about fuel and energy and what we're going to do about it. It's about the stuff outside of that because the fuel and energy side is not the all and end all. There's another 60% of the, of, of the oil producers go somewhere else. So all we can try and do is, is understand really what that oil is being made into and then stop buying it and buy alternatives. But at the same time, we've been talking about this for, for so long. And if people aren't educated at this point, do you have any hope that they ever will be? Does the government need to lead the way and, and, and put those blocks in place? Uh, yeah. I th Look, I've done this for a long time and it was literally like beating your head against a, a stone wall. It was very, very difficult. But the Blue Planet changed a lot of that. You know, I, what, what I've noticed and it was significant was that when the Blue Planet came out and suddenly people started to understand what people were talking about in terms of, of climate change and what could happen and, and what they had to do to change. That's the first time that I've seen a really rapid acceleration in, in industry, which is, of course, one of the key things that matters, where people started to talk about getting to net zero, making real change, and trying to, to get to the numbers that we were looking at before. Before the Blue Planet, it just wasn't that, that appetite wasn't there. So I think things like that, things that really appeal to a, a mass market and are very educational and very impactful, can continue to drive our path down that. Because if enough people listen, look, and want change, then industry will naturally follow because they'll see that competitive advantage and they'll move that way. So I can definitely see it from a, uh, I've seen the change over the last two or three years. 
you know, and I mean, can governments do more? They can always do more. But to do more, they're going to have to introduce more ta taxes, which people don't necessarily want. And they're going to have to try and enforce change, which again, people don't necessarily want. So it is normally better done from, from the bottom up rather than top down, if you want proper change. And that's what I'm hoping we've started to see over the last couple of years. We've certainly seen it in our own industry. We have seen real change over the last three years. Do you want to sort of drill down into that? What are the, what are the big milestones that you've been impressed by? I think probably the willingness of really large companies, you know, half a billion, billion turnover companies to try and get to a net zero target. And, and not just that, rather than just buy their way into it, in other words, offsetting, they're actually trying to find solutions that will minimize their, their carbon footprint and, and, and the effect that they're having, whether it's changing their cleaning products range, rather whether it's using uh, post-consumer recycled plastic rather than virgin plastic, rather it, whether it's changing how they use their, their fleets or how they use their transport. We've seen a real shift over the last few years towards a much more environmental and sustainable future from very big companies. And I, I, even if I went back five years, those companies had very little interest in doing it. So it, it's been a, a rapid change over, over a two or three year period. And that, that's got to give everybody hope because without those sorts of companies driving the change, then it is very hard to change. So there is a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. There is a little bit of light. Yeah, there's a little bit of light. <laughs> Let's hope uh, David Attenborough's got a few more series in him as well before. I know, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I can't tell you the impact that had. It was incredible. Remake Manufacturing is brought to you by Redfern Media, the digital agency for B2B manufacturers. We partner with B2B manufacturers to listen, think, create, and innovate. To find out more, head over to remakemanufacturing.com and sign up to the podcast, plus manufacturing marketing and technology insights. Now, back to the show. Alongside all of that, of course, the British government has a target to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 78% before 2035. How achievable is that goal and what can manufacturing do to contribute? I'd like to say it's very achievable, but unfortunately I'm not in charge of the country. I think from a manufacturing point of view, you know, we've gone through a very tough time over the last 10, 12 years. You know, we had the financial crash, then we all started to see a load of recovery. Then we've had COVID, which has had quite significant impact on everybody. Um, so I think people are starting to find their feet again. Um, and I think we'd lost that focus that I'd just been talking about over COVID. I think, you know, people had been focused on survival rather than back onto, onto the environment. But I think now that we've come out of it to, to a large degree, companies are much more focused on it. I, it goes back to the change that we talked about before for, for, for us to get anywhere near those targets, this specific things like plastic, for example, we've got to start moving away from virgin plastics, which is, which is a very high usage of, of, um, of oil. We've got to move away from traditional chemicals because traditional chemicals, again, come from non-renewable sources. And in general, we have to improve our, our, the transport in the, in the country, you know, particularly industrial transport to enable, to ensure that we, we reduce our energy usage. But, you know, things like the energy crisis that we're going through will naturally drive environmental change because people want to use less energy because of the cost. A lot, a lot of drivers towards the environment happen because of cost changes. 
suddenly things are more expensive than they ever have been and they look for alternatives and often those alternatives are more environmental. And suddenly everyone wants an electric car. Yeah, absolutely. Suddenly it becomes affordable because your traditional stuff has gone up in in cost. Absolutely. Um, So so let's talk about biological preparations and what what you're doing to contribute to a more sustainable future. What's your uh, activity and policies around, we can go back to climate change and reducing CO2 or perhaps reducing toxicity and the impact we're having on our seas? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've been doing this for a long time. So as, as things have, have moved on, more and more sort of policies and sustainable development goals have come in. Um, and we really, we're about trying to minimise the impact that, that man, man has, if you like, on the environment. That's really what we're trying to do. And, and that's quite broad, but biotechnology is very broad. And our mission really, if I'm going to be very specific, is around reducing plastic. So reducing plastic as a whole, but reducing the reliance on virgin plastic. And I think we're making, we're all making good steps on that. Um, a big one for us is, is providing renewable technology. So in other words, technology that isn't taking carbon out of the planet and putting it into the atmosphere. So it's sustainable, it's renewable, um, and it, and, and it, massively benefits climate change so that that's a significant area that we focus on um and to do it in a commercially beneficial way you know so you've got to be able to do these things and and ensure that people's cost base isn't going to increase if anything you want them to save money by moving to more environmental solutions and then sort of the last area that we we focus on is around um the toxic nature of 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 current chemicals and how they affect you know, your waterways, your, your seas, but also the environments that we, that we live in. You know, if you are a professional cleaner or you are in an environment that's cleaned regularly, you want to be in the healthiest environment that you can be in and, and utilizing more natural solutions, utilizing beneficial bacteria can only make that environment more healthy for you. You know, we still don't really understand the implications on human health of a lot of the chemicals that we do over a long period of time. You know, every Every couple of years, a new technology is banned. You know, something that we had used for years and years. Trichosan was banned three years ago because they found all sorts of problems with it. So as we gain more understanding of how chemicals affect us and as, we, as we're able to do things about that, I think we'll move much more towards natural solutions anyway, naturally. <laughs> for one of the poem. We'll move that way simply because it's the right thing to do as well as the cost savings and everything. Well, let's hope so. One more question on this area. Uh, let's focus in on the supply chain. How can manufacturing businesses reduce their carbon footprint there, uh, since in some ways uh, that's the hardest place to actually measure it? Yeah, so if we're doing, so what we do is we we measure where our suppliers are. We measure how many deliveries we get from them, the weight of those deliveries. Therefore, we understand the impact that the CO2 impact from the, from the transport alone will have. And as long as you're able to track these things, then you're able to reduce them. So you start, you start to make decisions on how far away am I buying things and can I buy them more locally to myself to have a, a, a lower impact. And then what you once you've done that step, what you then need to be doing is going back into your suppliers and saying, right, what's your supply chain? And how do we minimize the effect that that's having on, on the stuff that we buy? So as you go through step by step by step, as long as you are tracking, you've got some sort of 
KPI that you want to look at, as long as you understand that you have data that you want to, to try and reduce, then you've got a chance of doing it. What we found, and I, even, even, even this year, is that a lot of people have no idea what impact it's having. They don't look at the CO2E per mile. They don't look at the, the supply chain further down the, further down the track. You know, if you're buying something that's oil-based, well, it can only come from a few places. It's certainly not coming from the UK. So although you may be saying made in the UK, it's only made in the UK by you. It might not be, certainly not originally. So it's about trying to, to minimize and make it more local and less global in reality. But it's about tracking numbers. And that would require, that would require a, a big shift from the, the global system that we have today, products being shipped in and out of China and back around the world. How, re- how reasonable is that suggestion? Well, I think quite reasonable. I think if, if you'd have asked me in 2019, I would have said less reasonable. Right. But then COVID hit and suddenly everybody who was relying on a global supply chain collapsed. There was no global supply chain. You couldn't get anything from anywhere very easily. And the reliance on bringing things in from China when there was suddenly a spike in demand meant that we all ran out of stock. Everybody all over the country was running out of raw materials and packaging to be able to provide the British consumer and the British industry their solutions. So for people like us, we were much less affected because we were buying locally and we had solutions that were in place. But for most of the big players, they're reliant on a global supply chain. And I think the lesson a lot of companies have taken from this, the, the, this disaster was actually we can't rely on this extended global supply chain because actually there's too many ways it can fall down. We're going to have to look at much more local solutions. So I, again, I think certain, you know there are, there are some good things can come from some very horrendous things. And what can come out of this is actually much more around local, much more beneficial for us in terms of social and environmental. So you know that that is a change that I have started to see happening already. People are starting to buy more locally and look at their supply chains. So a silver lining to the COVID crisis, but slight one. As we go back to in inverted commas normal, um, do you think we'll go back to the old ways, or do you think we can preserve these benefits that you're talking about? No, I, th- I think we'll preserve them because I think what you find is once it's been set up, once enough companies have decided to make that change, then it becomes more affordable because a lot of, you, you know it makes it more competitive. It makes it less competitive when everybody's buying from let's say China, but if you've got something set up in the UK or something somewhere similar the benefits of having that local supply outweigh anything that you're getting from elsewhere. And with the price pressure that we're all being put under in terms of raw materials and packaging globally, those cost differences are becoming marginalized as it is anyway. You know, it isn't, it's nowhere near as cheap to import from, from China and places like that as it used to be um, because of energy prices and, and a variety of other aspects. But it's, I can certainly see it continuing. I, I don't see us going back to how it used to be. I think it will continue to change in this way. I think there's a drive from the market to do that. And I think there's that element of risk that people aren't going to forget in a hurry. I think people have been, you know, a lot of companies were stung heavily by that choice. So I think it will, I think it will change and stick. Well, let's hope so. Um, and looking forward again then, what are you excited by? What's at the cutting edge at the moment? Maybe stuff that you're working on or stuff that you're seeing. Um, what What's the next revolution around the corner? Well, I'd like to say it's biotechnology. I think, <laughs> I think if, even if I look outside of, of what we do, you know, there, are, there are some very, very clever companies out there who are looking at the challenges that we face as, 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 a, uh, as a global population. 
in terms of water, in terms of food, in terms of climate change. And a lot of the solutions to that are being found in the natural world, you know, whether it's pharmaceutical, whatever it is, it, a, a lot of what's currently happening is being taken from the natural world. And, you know, I look at some of the stuff, even stuff that we're working on, on like a, a longer time frame. you know, there, there are ways to disinfect by using microbes rather than using traditional disinfection techniques, which would be much more beneficial because it means that you're not reliant on instant disinfection. You can actually have a healthy environment that, that stops nasty things from even taking root in the first place. You know, you've got people who are looking at solutions to, you won't need to use fluoride in your toothpaste because you'll be able to use microbes. I mean, there's all sorts of exciting future stuff that's coming around the natural world. And it's, it's how long is it going to take to bring to market and how efficacious and cost-effective it's going to be, as, as it always is when you come to the commercial world. But yeah, it's a, re- it's a really exciting time for biotech. Well, with that, I think we'll move on to our final question. Uh, I'm going to end, end the show the same way I do every week by asking my guests to tell me the one invention that if it was never manufactured, your life would be unbearable. So, so what could you not live without? Ah, well, I, I'm going to give you two answers. My wife would say my phone because it's permanently attached to me. <laughs> but <laughs> I think from my perspective, I think the internet was the big thing for me, that 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 just opened the world. And I look at, you know, what my kids now understand what they're able to see and what they're able to do compared to what I had when I grew up. And that is just, it's just such an incredible, incredible invention and incredible. And the guy gave it away for free. It's just an incredible thing that happened to us. And, and it's, it, it dominates almost everything that we do. Yeah. Hard to imagine life without it now, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, all it leaves me to, to say now is uh, thanks to my guest, uh, James Patterson. No, thanks very much. I really enjoyed it. It was great. Subscribe to this podcast in all the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and Google Music. Thanks everyone for listening to this edition of Remake Manufacturing. I'm your host, Stuart Black. See you next time. <laughs>